Hello everyone and welcome to the September 14th edition of WorkComp Academy Weekly News. I'm Renee Folson, attorney with Floyd, Skarin and Kelly. Thanks for joining us today. Let's get started with our litigation report. The WCAB rejected an IMR determination and ordered a new IMR in one of the first panel decisions ruling on how an appeal of an IMR determination might work. Here's what happened in the case of McCaddy versus Briggs and Pearson Construction. Norman McCaddy sustained industrial injury to his neck, back, psyche, and other parts while working for Briggs and Pearson Construction as a carpenter. In 2011, he received a stipulated award of 100% disability in future medical care. McCaddy had unsuccessful back surgery and has continuing chronic pain. A nerve stimulator was not effective in relieving the pain. Thus, he has used narcotic analgesics for several years and has tried various formulations including duragesic patches which are helpful and improved his functioning. McCaddy appealed a December 2, 2014 IMR determination that modified his PTP's request for additional duragesic. The IMR rationale claimed that the guidelines go on to recommend discontinuing opioids if there is no documentation of improved function and pain. The reviewer then noted that the documentation available for review showed no improvement in the patient's function or pain, no documentation regarding side effects, and no discussion regarding aberrant use. The work comp judge denied the appeal, but a WCAB panel reversed. On appeal, McCaddy argued that the IMR determination resulted from plainly erroneous or implied findings of fact as described in Labor Code Section 4610.6. The WCAB agreed. The IMR findings in this case were mistakes of fact as a matter of ordinary knowledge and not a matter that is subject to expert opinion. The PTP specifically documents applicants' improved functioning and reduced pain with his use of the duragesic patches. These indications of improved function, reduced pain with use of the medication, along with documentation concerning potential side effects and aberrant use, show that the contrary IMR findings were mistakes of fact as a matter of ordinary knowledge. Reconsideration was granted, the decision was reversed and remanded for independent medical review by a different reviewer. Uber has decided to exit the Alaska marketplace rather than litigate its growing comp controversy. As it leaves the state, it has agreed to pay nearly an $89,000 fine to the state of Alaska over unpaid workers' compensation insurance for its drivers. Uber operated in Anchorage for about six months before the controversy arose. Uber admitted no wrongdoing in agreeing to the settlement. The company agreed not to return to Alaska until it is in compliance with state workers' compensation laws. 
The State Department of Labor and Workforce Development said it began an investigation into Uber's business practices when the company began offering rides in Anchorage in October 2014. But the investigation never made it to a hearing because Uber pulled out of Alaska in March in light of a judge's order that it operate for free and failed negotiations with the city of Anchorage. The company was operating in Anchorage under the assumption that its drivers were contractors and not employees. But the Department of Labor disagreed and Uber was not charged with violating state laws because the company stopped operating in Alaska while the investigation was ongoing, and the matter never got to a formal hearing. Other states, including California, have also ruled that Uber drivers are employees of the company and not contractors. The workers' compensation insurance issue was just one of many roadblocks the company faced when it tried to start its service in Anchorage. The city went to court to stop Uber from operating because it did not comply with the city's taxi ordinances, rules requiring drivers to get city-sanctioned background checks, have video cameras in their cars, and have a certain amount of collision and liability insurance. In October 2014, an Anchorage Superior Court judge ruled Uber could only operate in Anchorage if it continued its initial free ride program. The judge prohibited Uber from charging for rides until it could come to an agreement with the city over the details of its operations. Uber paid its drivers but did not charge its customers in Anchorage for about six months before pulling out of Alaska entirely. And now our crime report. Former Miss Toyota Grand Prix beauty contestant who was arrested for workers' compensation fraud in 2014, has now been convicted and sentenced. Shauna Lynn Palmer of Riverside pleaded guilty to one misdemeanor count of workers' compensation fraud and was sentenced to 36 months probation, performing community service, and ordered to pay a $1,000 fine and more than $5,000 in restitution. Palmer worked as a clerk at Stater Brothers, and on March 10, 2014, reported to her employer that she fractured a toe on her left foot at work. During multiple doctor visits, Palmer claimed that she could not place any weight on her foot, could not move it in any direction, or wear a shoe for any length of time. Palmer's doctor provided an ortho shoe, crutches, and gave her orders to refrain from working and to elevate her foot whenever possible. Palmer stated that she was not able to work due to her foot injury and continued to collect workers' compensation benefits. But while collecting work comp benefits, Palmer participated in at least two beauty contests wearing high heels and walking without any signs of discomfort. An investigation began after video was posted on YouTube of Palmer as a contestant in the 2014 Miss Toyota Long Beach Grand Prix Beauty Contest. A brother and sister team has been sentenced after pleading no contest to charges involving workers' compensation fraud and tax evasion. 37-year-old Michael George Mello Jr. pled no contest to felony workers' compensation insurance fraud and felony tax evasion. 
His sister, 38-year-old Mary Catherine Rodriguez, pled no contest to misdemeanor tax evasion. The defendants made false statements in their workers' compensation insurance applications and policies by significantly underreporting the number of employees and payroll in their business, Green Valley Landscaping Services. They also failed to take required deductions from their employees' pay and did not make required contributions to the employment insurance fund. They cheated their workers' compensation insurance carriers out of nearly $150,000 and the Employment Development Department out of more than $110,000. Mello was sentenced to 30 days county jail, five years formal probation in order to pay restitution to the insurance companies and the EDD. Rodriguez was sentenced to three years probation, ordered to serve 50 hours of community service, in order to pay EDD restitution jointly with her brother. The case was investigated by the California Department of Insurance's Fraud Division, the Employment Development Department, and the Department of Industrial Relations. And in regulatory news, industry experts say the planned DWC switch to ICD-10 next month should help Medicare secondary payer compliance. Starting October 1, medical providers will switch from ICD-9, which includes about 17,000 diagnoses and procedure codes, to ICD-10, which includes more than 155,000 codes. Many ICD-10 codes also specify the types, locations, and severity of conditions and injuries. Experts say the new codes will have the largest impact on workers' comp payers who deal with Medicare secondary payer compliance. The Medicare Secondary Payer Act requires insurers and self-insured employers to notify CMS of any workers' comp or liability claim settlement involving a Medicare-eligible individual. CMS can issue liens requiring that settlements be used to reimburse the agency for medical care it paid on a claimant's behalf or that payers set aside money to pay for future medical care related to a compensable injury. Medicare secondary payer experts say workers' comp insurers and self-insured employers often are asked to reimburse Medicare for injuries or illnesses unrelated to workers' comp claims because those conditions are lumped in with the claimant's occupational injury and medical records. But some say ICD-10 will be particularly helpful in allowing workers' comp insurers and self-insured employers to specify for which injuries they accept responsibility and those that should be paid by Medicare. Better accuracy and greater granularity and detail in determining and describing the injury are going to be advantageous for the provider community and for payers. The California State Senate voted 24 to 15 to approve a bill that would prohibit medical problems primarily affecting women from being considered pre-existing conditions when calculating workers' compensation benefits. The bill now returns to the Assembly for a final vote. This bill 
prohibits apportionment if pregnancy or menopause is contemporaneous with the injured worker's claimed injury. The bill also requires that breast cancer not be less than the comparable impairment rating for prostate cancer. It also prohibits apportionment in cases of psychiatric injury caused by sexual harassment or any of the conditions listed above if the conditions are contemporaneous with this psychiatric injury. On September 3rd, the Senate floor amendments removed osteoporosis causally related to menopause from the list of conditions where apportionment is prohibited. Some proponents of the bill have argued that the AMA guides are not objective, specifically in the area of gender-specific injuries. Specifically, proponents point out the fact that the AMA guides rate the removal of female breasts at a whole person impairment of zero, while the removal of a prostate would rate a 16 to 20 percent whole person impairment, arguing that such a rating shows bias against women. Opponents argue that AB 305 is an attempt to undermine an employer's use of apportionment when determining liability for permanent disability awards. Specifically, opponents note that apportionment is more than a decade old and ensures that employers do not need to pay for non-industrial injuries. Further, opponents point to case law and statutes which protects injured workers from abusive apportionment, including apportionment on the basis of gender. Opponents further argue that AB 305 will increase litigation, raise indemnity costs on employers, and increase systemic instability and subjectivity. And in medical news, Aetna has announced plans to buy smaller rival Humana in early July, and Anthem has agreed to buy Cigna later that month. Both mergers are being reviewed by the U.S. Department of Justice and state insurance officials. Now, the American Medical Association said that the two proposed mergers of U.S. health insurers worth tens of billions of dollars could lead to higher prices in 17 states. The American Medical Association study focused on the impact of the commercial, fully insured, and self-insured markets, largely made up of employer-based plans. The health insurers also manage plans for Medicare, Medicaid, and other government programs not included in this study. Anthem and SEGA combined would affect competition in 13 states where they sell individual insurance plans and in all 14 states where Anthem currently operates Blue Cross Blue Shield plans. But an Anthem spokeswoman said the two companies have limited overlap and the merger would help consumers by allowing the merged company to better manage costs. An Aetna and Humana merger would raise anti-competitive issues in as many as 14 states overall, including Humana's home state of Kentucky, Texas, Georgia, Utah, and Florida. The majority of Humana's business in the Medicare Advantage, which is not part of the study. The American Hospital Association has also made public its analysis of the two deals, saying they would diminish competition as well. 
The Department of Justice will make, uh, take a hard look at the AMA study as part of its federal review. The U.S. Department of Health and Human Services Data Warehouse serves as the enterprise repository for healthcare data and makes that data available to the public. The data warehouse integrates data with external sources, such as the U.S. Census Bureau, enabling users to gather relevant and meaningful information about, their, about healthcare programs. And the current data shows a growing shortage of psychiatrists. As of August 2015, a nearly 4,000 whole or partial counties in the United States where roughly 44% of the population resides are designated as mental health professional shortage areas. And the problem is likely to get worse. A recent survey by the Association of American Medical Colleges found that 59% of psychiatrists are age 55 years or older, the fourth oldest of 41 medical specialties, signaling that many may soon be retiring or reducing their workload. A vice president of the National Council for Behavioral Health said he is not aware of any part of the country where it is easy for network members to find psychiatrists. Statistics help tell the story. According to the American Medical Association, the total number of physicians in the U.S. increased by 45% from 1995 to 2013, while psychiatrists rose by only 12%. During that same time span, the U.S. population increased by about 37%. Meanwhile, millions more Americans have become eligible for mental health coverage under Obamacare. The president of the American Psychiatric Association says the perception of inadequate pay is a factor in discouraging some medical students from choosing psychiatry as a specialty. The latest federal data shows the mean annual wage of $182,000 a year for psychiatrists is slightly below the mean for general practitioners and 28% below that for surgeons. Some psychiatrists are switching to a cash-only practice out of frustration with what they view as inadequate reimbursement from government and private insurance plans. Geographically, the distribution of psychiatrists across the U.S. is uneven. California has 370 total designations of shortage in 53 geographical areas. 158 practitioners are needed in California to remove these designations. And that is all of our news and events for this week. Please check our website daily for news updates, past editions of our news, and much, much more. And remember, you can subscribe to our weekly news podcasts and special reports using your iPhone, iPad, iPod, or your Android device by searching for the WorkComp Academy with your podcast software. Again, I'm Renee Foles, an attorney with Floyd, Skern, and Kelly. Thanks for joining us today, and please drop by again next week for more news.